and I get the feeling you've been cheated. The magic might have been inside of us all along. Are you serious? Yeah. I told you, Michelle, I love you. Hello and welcome social yet distance listeners. Today it is my very great pleasure to be joined by the mighty Jane Byrne, a poet and artist who may even have the edge on John Dorsey and myself in terms of the sheer creative output. So Jane's pamphlets include Fat Around the Middle, which is by a talking pen, came out in 2015, and Tongues of Fire from Blacklight Engine Room Press 2016. Her collections are Nothing More To It Than Bubbles, Indigo Dreams 2016, this Game of Strangers, Weird Harvest Press 2017, co-written with Bob Beagrey. One of These Dead Places, Culture Matters 2017. Fleet, which is also Weird Harvest Press 2018. Remnant, Nice Forks and Spoon Press 2019, again written with Bob Beagrey. And the astonishing, one of my favourite collections of all time, Yantan Tether, Indigo Dreams 2020. Um, her poems have been nominated for the Forward and the Pushcart Prize. And she's praised in a frankly amazing number of poetry competitions. How many is it now? Like 47, 48? Something like that. I stopped counting when it was about 45 or something. So I don't know. I stopped counting. <laughs> I've, I've been kind of counting along with you. And I think we might, we might be like now up to like 40, 48, 49, maybe even 50. So Jane is um, a fellow associate editor at Culture Matters, where we worked on Witches, Warriors and Workers, an anthology of contemporary women's poetry. And she lives in an eco-friendly house in Northumberland, in a little wooden cottage. It's gorgeous. Um, many of her poems are about her adoration of language and how it connects her to the many passions and parts of her life. She is working class, a wife, a mother, bisexual, a poet, an artist, and a maker. She's also a late diagnosed autistic person. Um, this diagnosis, she says, has helped everything to finally make sense. She is currently doing an MA in writing poetry at Newcastle University, and her next collection, Be Feared, is due out in November from Nine Arches Press. She also plays a rather fabulous ukulele. Welcome, Jay. Hello, Fran. Thank you for having me here. It's great. See, we've both got our dogs in the background as well today, so it's sort of like... I don't know if you can hear mine snoring currently. <laughs> can you hear him? Every so often there's like this little doggy sound, it's so sweet. Manny doesn't make such good noises. He's snoring like a chainsaw right next to me at the moment. <laughs> I see. Yeah, so we'll probably hear Manny later. Manny may also come in. They're doing their own interview through the medium of interpretive bodily yeah. noises, yeah. So I want to dive right in um, by asking if you could tell us something about your forthcoming collection, particularly the significance of the title Be Feared, which I actually think should be our motto as generally unacceptable working class women poets. <laughs> I wonder if, if you just have a sense in your recent work of having sort of found that rage or a sense of moving towards a more unapologetically angry voice. Yes. Um... Well, the, the title, uh, Be Feared, it actually comes from um, a really small poem in the collection. It sort of appears midway in. Um, it's such a tiny poem, but it was an absolute catalyst for putting this whole collection together. 
Um, you know, when you think back and you think, wow, I think it was writing that little poem that really began this mm. book. Um, it was, uh, it, I mean, usually in a collection, the, the title poem shares the same title as one of the poems in there, but in this case, it doesn't. The, the words be feared are buried in this very small but very important poem, um, and I wrote it while I was still working at the supermarket, which I did for five years. But I was beginning to acknowledge my inability to sustain myself mentally there for much longer. So this poem was part of my realization that I had to do something about myself, the way I felt, what was happening to me inside my life. And some months after writing this poem, I found the courage to leave that job seek a final answer to my health issues and at the age of 48 find the courage and the self-belief to use my art and poetry to scratch out a living it also became clear to me how important those words be feared were to me and my new courage in writing those words began to shape me and my writing afresh I didn't find a new voice. I found new layers of it that before I hadn't quite known how to access, though those layers were buried there, screaming for air. I wanted to express my gratitude and passion for this Catalyst poem, and it seemed that there could be no other title for this book. Um, I've lived in the Northeast for 29 years now. And it's pretty much absorbed me as I have absorbed it. And I'd find it hard now to imagine living it anywhere else. Um, feared is a slang word here. It's a dialect word here. You know, she's feared of him. Oh, I'm feared of exams. You know, it's, it's used like that, but it just seems like an absolutely immense word. I am not, I'm not just afraid. I'm feared. I'm feared. What a strong word, be feared. Be afraid because life has so much that will make you afraid. So, so be feared of it. Um, I just find the word just absolutely swells my insides out when I hear it, you know, be feared. Because it's also a very ferocious word. I want to turn it round and I want to say to the poetry world, be feared of me because I'm coming. I am coming, be feared. And I want other people to be able to feel the same as well, you know, be feared. So it's a positive and a negative as well. And I love the double-edged sort of play on that title. So, so in the end, I thought there could be no other title for this collection. And the rest of it sort of span off from that. Um, I also want to acknowledge that this little poem uses the 821 form which was invented a few years ago by fellow Northeast working class poet, Lisa Matthews. She came up with this form herself um, and it's a wonderful, wonderful form. Um, so I'll just read that poem now. Fantastic. It's called, This is a Frankenstein Night. Rebuild the monsters in your life. Finish work in the dark. Pace the salted car park to where you parked. You spent the shift smiling, cramping on unpassed wind. The waistband bites. Check behind, let go of painful blusters as you waggle across the stiffened grit. 
turn to unlock the car, be feared that someone might grab your back, pull out your lungs, crack your spine, ground you like a broken doll. Sit at the wheel and scream your breath. Press a thumbnail to the opposite hand and scrape a beautiful trace of pain. Mourn the lack of spectacle. Too much night for birds. Snatch what you can from the headlights fan. Stretch your voice to the radio. Make your throat a wishing well. Oh, thank you so much for reading. That's an amazing poem. Love that poem. It's small, but it's so it's so mighty that you can feel there's like that intensity. It's so packed tight together. You can feel that knot in your stomach that you were talking yeah. about. That kind of yeah, that sort of contracted tight feeling that wants that also wants to expand to kind of encompass everything. And it's yeah. it's so wonderful that you're also you're honouring an invented form from another wonderful working class woman because that's yes. that's, that's how we raise important. each other. It is. Mm. It's how we raise each other up. Definitely. It's amazing. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, I don't want this to be like you know the rate Fran and Jane's rage cast, but I do want to talk a little bit about about anger and about um, your experiences both within kind of prize and publication culture, which I know we've talked a bit about before, and also within academia and the MA programme. And I wonder if you feel that poetry still has a problem with anger, like especially with women's anger. I very often read like contemporary lyric collections come out and they're always being touted as being really edgy or angry or feminist. And I have to say that when I pick most of them and read them, I find them obvious and snarky and ultimately quite well behaved. And this doesn't speak to rage as I experience it or understand it. And I think, you know, as working class women, do you think there's something about our anger that's considered probably not quite nice or acceptable for human consumption? And does that colour how we're treated so within the space of the university and within wider publication culture. Yeah, I mean, rage is a difficult thing to articulate. Um, I mean, I can only speak for myself with any certainty, but I do know that each of my poems is some kind of bonfire, some kind of exorcism, sometimes a quiet one, sometimes mm. a loud one, but it's an exorcism all the same. I know my work can be interpreted as stressful for the reader, not an easy read. I'm a literary vandal. <laughs> I am throwing my poems through an invisible window. They are wrecking balls flung at internal and external walls. When I am writing, I do worry they am not considering the reader. I do not mean this in any way derogatively towards the reader or I'm not considering how the reader might feel when they're suddenly ambushed by one of my poems. Sometimes I ambush myself when I'm writing them. My brain makes these enormous jumps inside and in my own neurodivergent way, I just assume that everyone has made the leap with me. I'm the same when I'm holding a conversation. I start to talk about something and just assume the listener knows what I'm referring to. I do try to be conscious of this, but it often gets forgotten in the euphoric rush of creation. Some might say that this is a negative, 
but what it does lead to is incredibly honest, unflinching poems that do not balk at any subject matter. And this has led to many people writing to say that they identify with and appreciate this honesty, that it resonates with them, that it gives them the courage to do the same, to maybe be a bit more Jane Byrne. (laughs) (laughs) I come with too many spikes, so you cannot sit next to me comfortably. If people give me the time, they often begin to respect me just based on the strength of my work. I'm often tongue-tied, shy or worried that I'm talking too much about the wrong thing face to face. It's my poetry that offers me the fluency that I am lacking in real life. My anger comes in strange shapes and I guess there has been no defining what kind of poet I am. I wouldn't be able to define myself really. I'm just a poet. I just am and I will not fit easily anywhere I am not simply a nature poet an eco poet a feminist poet a woman poet a working class poet an LGBTQIA plus poet a historical poet a myth and legend poet a political poet therefore I am tough to define whose bookshelf do I sit on Do people need to be able to put a poet in a box to quantify them, so to speak? I am very grateful to all the other presses who I have worked with for giving me a place, but especially now with Jane Kamane at Nine Archers, because I feel with this next book, I'm taking great leaps into the unknown. And the fact that she has faith in me does mean a great deal. I don't know if that answers the question at all. Yeah, no, it does. I think it's it's about that shape, that sense of being undefined and not being an easy fit within any of these kind of ridiculous ready-made categories of belonging. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of people out there, particularly, I think, you know, sort of people from working class backgrounds who identify with that, whose poetry isn't maybe working class in that kind of very obvious sort of... Yeah. Yeah, slightly, maybe. I don't want to sort of like, you know, I don't want to be disparaging, but in a very, that that's your theme. Every, you're just writing about grot and poverty. That's all you're allowed to write about. Yeah, that's, and, and I just think, can I not just be working class and I write? Mm. You know, yes. does, the expect, does the expectation have to be that I'm only going to write about, you know, being down the mine or, or, or starving in an attic or, or something which is great, you know, I've written about those things, but it's not what defines me. I just happen to be working class and I happen to write poetry and, and that should be enough without expecting a working class poet to be anything. You know, we don't have to be gritty if we don't want to be. We don't, you know, we can write about whatever we please. We have the same access to subject matters, any poet you know we are not defined by what we write we write because we write and we are working class um which is coming out a bit gobbledygook but I know what I mean um, I know what you mean yeah, exactly. yeah I do know what you mean and just the desire to be defined and and for people to take you seriously enough that they afford poets that status as a primary kind of identity or primary category and not try to sort of tell well she's a great woman poet or she's a great feminist yeah. poet or she's like can I not just be a good poet 
I, don't I just try and be, yeah. yeah. I just want to be a good poet. That's what I want to be, a good poet. Mm -hmm. And I don't want any limits placed on any subject matter I write about, you know. Mm -hmm. That's what that's what I want from poetry. I want to be a poet and I write about anything I want to write about at any time, any place, anywhere. So So to anyone that says <laughs> otherwise, basically, just yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is also how I feel after having sort of I don't know that you, I don't know if you feel similarly that there are sometimes you, people are trying to sort of shoehorn you into a particular direction you know you go, go over here and stand next to the other you know stand next to the yeah. other queer poets go over here and stand stand next to the other feminist poets or go over here and stand next to the other kind of neurodiverse poets and you're like well yeah. can I just can I not just be can me? I just be me I just want to be me yeah that's, yeah, that's what I want to be, not not defined by anything. I just want to be a poet and that's it. And hopefully respected as one. That would be nice. <laughs> yeah, that would be awesome. I feel like, you know, it doesn't it doesn't often happen in life, though, does it? So I'm not sure it's ever going to happen in poetry. I think the point that you made about people contacting you and saying that your work resonated with them, I think there's a difference definitely between the audience who is finding your work and who is getting something out of it and who has this very um, intimate, passionate and engaged kind of dialogue with you in your writing and with the poetry biz out there who are maybe more standoffish and don't know quite what to do with the likes of us. Yeah, that's true. I don't think many people currently know what to do with me at all. But hopefully they'll just accept you on a level with who you are. That's... Mm -hmm. That's, that, that's what I always hope for, you know, to be, like I said, to be equal with my peers, to be offered the same opportunities as my peers, um, and to be able to open the same doors as my peers. So hopefully, fingers crossed, I'll get there. I won't stop trying and I won't stop banging on the doors. It's a shame we have to bang on them, but you do, you do. Yeah. You do. And I suppose that's why your work takes on a, a, a scary edge as well, is because you are fighting. Mm -hmm. You know, you fought your whole life against, you know, you know the, the, the opportunities you haven't had or the problems you faced, you know, your situation. You, you feel like you fought from the day you were born. Mm -hmm. And it's a hard thing to shake, the amount of fight that comes out of you and, and you know, and then passes into the work you write, you know. Um, so that, I think that's why people might find it hard to identify sometimes with it is they wonder why you're fighting so hard or shouting so loud and it's, it's just it's what I know it's what I've always had to do and I'm still having to do it and I'd like to come to a time maybe it's imaginary but it might be a time out there I don't have to do it yeah and, and I can just relax and be a poet and there is no edge, there's no blade against anything I do. It's just poetry and me is where I dream of ending up. That sounds wonderful. It's kind of, that yeah. sounds like a perfect dream, but yeah, oh. we've got a ways to go, right? But you, you deserve to be there, definitely. I'm trying. No one can ever say she didn't try. Like I think that'll be my epitaph. <laughs> no one can ever say 
<laughs> didn't try. <laughs> but this is it. I think you know that there are all there's already like a queue of people that stretches halfway around the block who are willing to kind of do you down and cut you out. And the only way you are complicit in your own failure is by not trying. You don't want to give them the satisfaction of giving up. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely not something I feel able to do. Can I just pop to the loo? I'm absolutely yeah. bursting. Yeah, no worries. I'm <laughs> Sorry, just put that in the middle of it. <laughs> I'll just be like two minutes. Sorry, right, I'll Sorry. pause. No worries. There we go. So yeah, I, I kind of wanted to ask about the sort of nuts and bolts, talking about being taken seriously as, as an artist. I wanted to talk a bit about um, the nuts and bolts of your creative process and about just your, your absolute facility and your dexterity and precision with language. Because I think, you know, one of my favourite descriptions of your work is that your writing is like pyrotechnic. So I really see that, I would see your poems as controlled explosions because there's a discipline and craft there that I think is often, you know, when people talk about our work and I talk about being damned with faint praise, because people often say, you know, oh, it's very edgy, it's very raw, it's very, I'm like, well, no, it isn't actually. It's it's highly disciplined and it's highly controlled yeah. and it's crafted, you know, it's not, I'm not some sort of like idiot savant sitting in a ditch poking berries at my nose, scratching my palms out with a stick. And I don't know what you're trying to kind of imply or how you're trying to position me when you say those things. And I think with working class women, like the, the kind of like the really difficult intellectual work that we do is often overlooked or it's unattended to, because I think there's this fiction that to be able to write with intelligence and wit and purpose, you have to have been through the system, but we're not learning it from the system nine times out of 10, we're learning the poetry from elsewhere that there are other sources other than, you know, a PhD or an MA programme or school, because I don't, you know, I think both you and I found school quite adversarial and awful in a variety mm. of ways. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So yeah, I wonder if you could just tell us something about how poetry came into your life and about your creative process for writing and, and, and making the poem. Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, I know I'm probably not a poet for everyone. If you put me against streamlined minimalism and there's nothing wrong with streamlined minimalism, don't get me wrong, they could say I appear Latinate. And that mm. is almost said to me as a criticism that I'm too Latinate. Um, and it, it's not, it's just that I'm different. I'm different. I'm not the same writer as somebody else. And in a way, it's, it's, it's mad to compare writers because we're all so unique and we've all got, you know, our own voice. If, if we're not like someone else, I think that's great. Mm. We're not supposed to be like everyone else. We're supposed to be different. We're individual people. Um, I mean, words fascinate me so much. Just individual words, you know, they're, they're different levels of meaning, their etymology, the way you can extend meanings with the correct word choice for your idea. Um, I love dialect and the way mm. words have changed through history. And there's such a massive stock of words. Um, and if, if, if that was in the mouth of, you know, a, 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 a celebrated academic, they would celebrate it without question. Yeah. In my mouth, it's a perplexity with a mm -hmm. hint of 
should she really be doing this on the side of it? Um, I believe if I was, you know, a professor or something, nobody would question uh, the, the way that my words are Latinate. Mm. And you've only got to read, you know, a critical essay on poetry. And it's full of like bazonking massive huge words. <laughs> That's brilliant, you know, and you think, wowza, look at all these glorious words. I love mm. it. Um, but in your mouth, it somehow translates to being viewed differently and it should be viewed exactly the same. Um, I'm just somebody who has an incredible magpie word store that gets added to 50, <laughs> 60 times a day. Um, if I come across a word I don't know in a piece of literature, I look it up and I learn it. Mm. Um, and this is a part of the joy of poetry and, and, and literature. That is a joy for me if, if you come across those things and it fires me up, um, you know, um, and you're not done with learning. You're, you're never done with learning. Um, and, to, you know, to sometimes level at me a criticism that I'm not being accessible because I'm using words someone has to look up. And I think, well, why? Why is that inaccessible? When you have, you know, if you're reading a poetry book and you need to know what a word means, look it up. Because yeah. you can't possibly carry the meaning of every single word in the world in your head. No one does that. Everybody mm -hmm. has to look words up. Um, and I find that an interesting aspect to somebody's poetry or writing. You know, I'm interested in, in why do you think they've chosen that word? What are they saying with it, you know? Mm. And you, you we're meant to look at, at yeah. poems for all the different layers of meaning in them, you know, from your first reading to the 10th reading or whatever, by the time you start to break it up in a sort of, for, for want of a better word, academic process of looking at a poem, you know, they're the kind of things that in a critical essay book would be lauded. It'd be mm -hmm. great. Look at what this poet is doing with, you know, why is why she used this one particular word? Why debitage and not just dirt? You know, you've got, mm -hmm. and then you spin off and do all these different things that debitage can represent within the metaphor, mm -hmm. you know, and I could go on forever about it. And I do have to defend myself on, mm -hmm. on many occasions for this. Um, and the last person to ever be an access inaccessible is me, <laughs> who fights tooth and nail for accessibility. But I also fight for the right to use whatever word I please as well. I'm getting quite heated about that no. because I don't think people can tell you how you should be writing or why you should be writing or what words you should be using. Um, you know, you, you've it's difficult because you know you hear feedback and, and you do accept there are things in there of great value and yes. you know you, you can apply that to your work but you can't fundamentally change who you are and someone should not fundamentally want to change who you are as a writer you know no one's going to make me a minimalist poet I'm not going to maybe mm. I will maybe I will write a poem with three words on the page one day and I'll have a I'll have a brilliant explanation for why I've done that if I ever do that. Because um, what, I'm, what I'm learning grows every single day. And when I started my MA, I did joke to friends that by the time I left, I'd write poems so distilled they'd be invisible on the page and sound like fridge <laughs> noise. <laughs> 
because you do change. Um, you know, I'm measuring each word so much more acutely mm. than I ever was before. Um, I'm considering the why of everything, you know, why that form, why that line break, why that caesura, you know, things like, and this constant flux is still playing with the beefier collection because mm. I'm still editing away madly. I'm tucking, nipping, sweeping through it because every day I feel like I've got a new broom to sweep with. Everything you learn is a new tool, is more power to you, is more power to yourself, yes. which is ultimately why I wanted to do the MA because mm. it was also, it felt like, you know, to, to exclude me from academia, mm. I wasn't an academic poet. I could write the cleverest thing in the world and not be mm -hmm. considered an yes. academic poet. So, and I felt like it was it's just another door I have to knock on and break mm -hmm. down, which is what I'm now doing. I want to find out what's behind that golden door. Um, and actually, it's a world I can compete in as an equal yes. um, and do compete in as an equal. But I wouldn't have known that if I hadn't got through that door. Mm. And when I have those letters after my name, they're going to have to say I'm an academic poet. And that means a lot to someone who started off, you know, like one of my poems mm. in one of these dead places, someone who thought she was thick as pig shit yeah. when she was young and had no idea what was in there. And, and for me to have got that far, for me to have got into academia, is, is a wonderful thing. So when people used to say to me, why are you doing it? You don't need to do it. Yes, I do yes, need to do it. Do. And hopefully God willing or finances willing or some kind of miracle willing, I'll be able to go on and do a PhD mm. as well. Um, because once I've completed the, the barrier of MA, there'll be another door that mm -hmm. I want to go through because I'm like that anyway. I must yeah. be very ambitious in my own way that there is always door above me that I want to go through. Mm. And just curious as well. And just, you know, not having had access to that world and not having had the opportunity, I think, to be kind of complacent about it or to be habituated with it, because it's not always there whenever you want it. And nobody in your family has been through that door before you. Like, so, cause when I went, I was the only person as well. And it was, there's nobody to tell me what to do or how it'll be or what it's like. And so the only way you know is to go. And so you go. And I love what you were saying, talking about, you know, how every day you have a new broom to sweep with and there's a new tool in the toolbox because that's how it should be. And all the, all the rest of the stuff, all the politics, all the nastiness, all the you don't belong here, which is a big thing in academia. It's a huge thing. And people still aren't, they're not even talking, they're still not talking about it, you know, at an institutional level. There's never been any kind of like, you know, conversation about why working class women feel so unwelcome and so unloved in those spaces. But aside from all of that, the learning and the having that knowledge and the being able to apply it to your own work is priceless. And it's something yeah. they can't take that away. Whatever else they do to you, whatever else they, they cannot take that away from you. <laughs> and I will call myself doctor like forever. And it will be brilliant when you can be, we can be Dr. Byrne and Dr. Locke together. That will be yeah. the most amazing 
if, if I ever achieve that, I'm probably going to probably paint it on my forehead or probably paint it backwards <laughs> knowing me and make a mistake. Um, but it's, it's all about earning respect as well, because I know if someone first meets me, they don't know what's coming, you know? Mm. I sound terrible. I look terrible. You know, I'm different. I am different. Mm. You're different. Um, and I cannot... I call it academic speak. I shouldn't. I keep trying mm. to think of another term for it when, when it comes to just speaking in mm. a group. I do feel shy and I do and I, and I feel like I, I can't. But what I keep thinking is have courage, stick mm. with it. And then when you read your poems, then you can gain their respect because yes. if, then they will see who you are and what you're capable of if you can't hold your own in a room of peers, you know, and you know, it's like me using the word cesura in this interview. Oh my goodness, I feel <laughs> wow, look at that. I know the word cesura now. I've just have said there's a natural break in the line before I started my MA, but now mm. I can say as a cesura. So I'm still learning how to function in that environment. Mm. So I still have to leave it up to the poems. And I think, fair enough, I want to leave it up to the poems because yeah. that's where I am fluent. That's where I am confident. That's where I start to fly. That's where I do everything mm -hmm. I want to do. And it doesn't matter. It shouldn't matter how you function outside of your poem. People should accept you for who, who you are um, and not make any judgments because you have a silly voice or you make mistakes, or you forget what you're talking about, and the word you wanted has gone out of your head, and all these <laughs> things that happen. Mm. Um, I just think, read the poems, and um, let them speak for me. Yeah. yeah. I think that's... I completely relate to that. <laughs> the expectation is it, it's a gritty cityscape, or gritty factories, or gritty estates. It's not someone living in the middle of nowhere in a small mm. cottage or something and, and being working class. So I think that's, you know, something where the balance needs to be, uh, be, be readdressed, which, which Wendy is doing with her new magazine, Spelt and everything. So if mm. anyone's got any poems that might fit there, that would be a good, a good place to sort of maybe send them. Yeah, um, so there are a few people trying to redress that balance. Um, I mean, I'm from the country mm. you know there was two pig farms on my street and a maggot farm at the bottom that's the working class country for yeah. you that's where they stick the crap yeah. you know we can we can smell that we can dare each other to peek through the windows mm. at the maggot farm and get chased away you know that's <laughs> that's where we got stuck because we're poor you know um so it's certainly we you know it's certainly we, we had to travel to a different area to travel like I don't know half an hour on the bush you're in a completely different area it's transformed and there certainly isn't you know an area like that where all the filth and muck is you know it's on it's all sort of contained um and I did live in the city for a bit but now I'm, I'm back to rural I'm, I'm back to being rural working class because you know I, I can find beauty anywhere really when I lived in the city I found beauty anywhere um because I try really hard to find beauty everywhere, but I find it much better, you know, yeah. in, in, in the rural landscape, yeah. Definitely, agreed. And I think there's the idea, I think as well, that there's sort of slightly insidious, that only the middle classes can appreciate the beauty 
of the countryside. It's like if you're working class, you know, we'll stick you in a council estate next to the megaphone because you you can't, you haven't got the finer feelings to appreciate all these rolling hills and these beautiful deserts. All you want to do is sit in and watch TV or smoke or go to the pub. That's all you want to do, working class person. You can't possibly access beauty. You don't have any, you know, pastoral feelings. You don't have any lyric impulse towards nature. No, how dare you, you know? <laughs> I very often feel that that's the that's where it's going and there's this move to try and position the countryside as just this kind of leisure space I think they like to forget that work ever happened there that animals yes. this is where your food is coming from idiot you know this is <laughs> where do you think your beef bourguignon is coming from what do you think is growing your fucking Maris Piper potatoes yeah and somebody's just. out there plowing and shoveling us and mm-hmm. getting up at four or five a.m in the morning or working till god knows when and you know you know somebody's working always there's somebody working Mm -hmm. yes you know behind the scenes and and they need to be acknowledged and you need they need to be respected and you need to believe they find the world just as beautiful as everybody else they might not have been given the automatic Mm -hmm. tools to express it like i wasn't we have to earn those tools Yes. I think we have to try a bit harder mm. to find those tools because they weren't an automatic given unless you were very, very lucky. Um, so, you know, we were there. <laughs> you just have to look, definitely. Yeah, we are there. My mum says that as well. She's in, she's in Cambridge and the fans and she's in a council estate in Cambridge and the fans. And she's, it's, you know, it's that amazing sense being poor and rural of, of privilege to be somewhere so beautiful. Yeah. Um, but at the same time of also being extremely cut off because all the resources are concentrated in the city. Yeah, it's, um, it's more difficult with, with buses and transport and just the logistics of life are a lot more difficult, mm-hmm. definitely. Yeah, it's, it's important. So if, um, could you send me the link to um, Wendy's uh, magazine and I will, I will yeah. put the link in the show notes for anyone that wants to okay. 